0: Thank you, Emma. That was beautiful. Well, good morning, Bethel. Um, I do have uh, one uh, announcement here that I want to draw to your attention um, before we dive into our text for this morning. Um, as some of you are probably well aware, um, this Tuesday, um, the bill, the marriage equality bill, is going to be coming. Before the House. I guess they're scheduled to vote on Tuesday. And so some of the area um, evangelical ministers um, have dialogued a bit on this and uh, thought it would be appropriate for us to stand together as a united church community and um, speak out on behalf of our churches to say this is what we believe about marriage. between one man and one woman for life. Um, and so a few of those men were commissioned to, um, to put together a draft, a letter, basically, that we could send to our representatives and senators. And um, so they did that. Obviously, something like that takes a little bit of time, and it came up relatively late, so it came in to me relatively late, so it's coming to you kind of quickly here, um, but we are going to uh, sign our name to, uh, to this letter, um, so uh, Hocasin Baptist Church, John Belay, and um, Bill Schlonecker was the one that kind of facilitated it as one of the leaders on the EMF committee, the Evangelical Ministerial Fellowship. Um, so John Belay and Curtis Hill and um, actually Bo Matthews from, from uh, Brandywine Valley put this together. And so there's going to be an opportunity out in the lobby to sign, um, and then we'll take those signatures and send them tomorrow um, to our representatives and senators. Um, so encourage you to, to do that. I'm just going to read a brief portion from the letter. I'm not going to read the whole letter. It's a little over a page. Um, there'll be copies out there if you'd like to read it before you sign it. Um, so I think it's a good letter, and um, I think we can agree to what is stated there. So we want to take it seriously. We don't want to rush anything like this. Um, we're not typically um, promoting a lot of causes, but this is a very significant um, issue with a lot of ramifications. Um, love to take the time to teach through these things, and maybe I will in, in the near future, um, but for at least this morning, I'm going to read a couple paragraphs and then encourage you, if you can, to sign um, the document, and uh, we'll be sending that out on behalf of our church and some of the other churches in the area. So we are pastors of churches in Newcastle County, Delaware, because of conviction of truth and out of compassion for our neighbor. We are compelled by conscience to speak as one voice about marriage. We believe that the Bible reveals the character and purposes of God in a way that is binding on the conscience of the church. We are charged by God to declare the whole counsel of God as found in Holy Scripture to the congregations we love and serve. First, we recognize the institution of marriage as a union of one man and one woman that God has created and instituted. We also believe our Lord Jesus Christ taught the church to hold this belief when he said in the Gospel of Mark, at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Um, so there's quite a bit more there, and you're welcome to read it. Um, at the end, it says, Accordingly, we call on all who honor the name of Jesus Christ to join with us in this affirmation of marriage between one man and one woman for life. So I encourage you to sign that so that we can send it. Um, So, uh, this morning we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke again. We've been, if you're visiting with us, um, we typically walk through um, books of the Bible uh, and study God's Word together uh, sequentially, like that, a little bit at a time. And uh, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a while. So, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 24 to 38. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 38. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Um, And if you don't own one, we'd be more than happy to give you a copy out there at the Welcome Center afterwards. Um, We'd love to give you that gift. So let's read this text together and then we will dive in. So, the context, if you remember from last week, is the Last Supper, shortly before Jesus is going to be betrayed, and the disciples are with him in that upper room after the Last Supper. Verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among the apostles, the the disciples, as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom." And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But Simon said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, The rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this is This which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another day of life We acknowledge that you are the author of life. You are the creator and sustainer of all things. It's in you that we live and move and have our being. And you are the one who made us. You are the one who knows what's best for us. And originally, you created us male and female. And it was not good that man should be alone. And you created the institution and gift of marriage. And Lord, in our fallenness from the very beginning, when when our first parents doubted your goodness and looked elsewhere for satisfaction, we... Ever since, we've all been bent and broken, and we are all bent and broken sexually, and there are so many ways in which that brokenness can express itself, and it is all sin when it is not according to your plan. So, Lord, I pray that as we, the church want to stand for your institution of marriage, I pray that it would be with a humble posture, recognizing that we are all broken and that is not the only way that, that homosexual marriage or homosexual relationships are not the only way in which our sexuality gets twisted and, and goes wrong, but that we are all broken and all Twisted and in need of your redemptive grace to reform and reshape us. So Lord, I pray that in the way we stand or speak up on these issues, I pray that we would do it without vindictiveness, without hate speech, without anything that would smack of hypocrisy and bigotry, regardless of whether those Labels are thrown at our feet. I pray that it would be very clear that we are simply seeking to trust your wisdom in creating human beings in your image and knowing what is best for them. And so, Lord, we do pray for the good of so many families and children and men and women. In our state now and in the future. And for the glory of your name, we pray that this bill would not pass. And yet, Lord, we also know that we live in a fallen world and we will oftentimes be out of step with the culture around us. And I pray that we would be humble, loving people that. Bless those who curse us. That do not return evil for evil, but return good for evil. And we pray for those who persecute us. And I pray that we would love people that are sexually broken in every and any way. And I pray that this place would be a place where broken sinners are welcome of every kind. And we pray that we would see your redeeming grace at work in broken sinners of every kind. Lord, thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to gather together like this in freedom and to study your precious and powerful word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and loves to reveal himself. You are not aloof. You are not disinterested and disengaged from your creatures, your creation. And we know that ultimately because you sent your Son who took on flesh and blood to ultimately reveal your character and glory to us. If we've seen him, we've seen the Father. And I pray that you'd give us eyes to see him in all of his glory in this passage this morning. I pray that you would shape us by his words. I pray that you would make us the humble, gospel-loving people that this text makes us to be or is intended to make us be. Remind us, Lord, that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And I think we also need to be reminded that thankfully, you also give grace to the proud, (laughs) breaking them of their pride and restoring them. So help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand that you would lift us up in due time. Help us to trust in you and be shaped by your countercultural values and means that we would not take our cues from this world in its selfishness and self-centeredness, its orientation to step on others to get ahead, its orientation to use other people for selfish purposes. I pray that we would be an utterly distinct and different people, taking our cues from our suffering servant king, Jesus. And I pray that we would follow him, despising the shame, just like he did en route to the cross for the joy set before him. And I pray that we would see the joy that is set before us. So Lord, please teach us. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears, give us attentiveness to you and to your word and shape us by it for your glory and for our good and the good of those that you want us to serve. In Jesus' name, amen. So this text, um, you know, if I I ask the question, how do you define greatness? Okay, you probably know where I'm going. (laughs) If you're familiar with this text at all, You know that Jesus redefines greatness. But I think we might know, oh yeah, I know, servant-heartedness. Okay, so stop and just think of of the air that you breathe all around you. Um, It's really easy for this to subtly affect the way that we view the world because the world's definition of greatness is so much different than Jesus' definition of greatness. So if you like sports, let's say... You got to go down to the stadium. You know somebody that can get you in the locker room. Whose autograph do you want? You want the autograph of the greatest player in that room. Right? Now, is that necessarily bad? What, I, what I'm saying is we don't define the greatness in that moment by that person's personal life necessarily, but by their success On the field. Who do you want your picture taken with? The janitor? How do you define greatness? We need to realize that when Jesus comes with a countercultural word, even if it's a familiar countercultural word, we need it more than we might realize because, again, the whole point of a countercultural word is that the air that you breathe is a different culture than the culture that should mark the church. Jesus' people, we are a different people. We ought to, in a sense, not float along like jellyfish in this culture with its values, but rather swim against that by the grace of our Lord Jesus. And he leads us in that against the grain, against the current swim. So let's dive in here to Luke 22 and see... um, what Jesus has to say to us here. It might seem like, as as you listened along as I read through the passage, it might seem a little bit like thematic pinball. Does it seem like, boy, these things, do they really hang together? It just seems like we're bouncing from one thing to the next. But all of this section has to do with both the failure, betrayal, denial of the disciples, and also their hope beyond the failure. That's what holds this whole section together. And their hope beyond the failure, they have nothing else to attribute that to, but Jesus and his fabulous mercy and grace that's outlined here. So let's look at it. Uh, little context here. Remember, we looked at the Last Supper last week, and the Last Supper ends there. Um, this is the cup poured out for you, a new covenant in my blood. And then he says, there's one here who's going to betray me. His hand is on the table with mine. And Judas obviously must have disguised his true heart and agenda pretty well. No one suspected him. Nobody knew. Oh, well, we know who that is. Okay, nobody did. So in verse 23, they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this. Because they're not sure. So you can imagine how verse twenty three quickly degenerates into verse twenty four. Can you picture this? So they're sitting around the table. Well, it's obviously not me. What's well, probably so and so? and they're doing this jockeying for position thing. Like, nah, couldn't be me. Couldn't be. Maybe it's maybe it's so and so. And little pockets are forming, and pe- you know, they're just dis- they're disputing. Discussing turns into dispute. So verse 24, there also arose a dispute, which is like contentiousness. There's rivalry going on here. They were disputing among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. I mean, can you think of any less appropriate time for this kind of posturing, this kind of petty arguing to come up than now? I mean, had they scrambled for the best seats when they got up to the upper room? Oh, I know where my seat is. I got to get that seat. I got to get that seat. And I think we read this so easily, we can be shocked, we can be surprised, we can scoff at the disciples for their thick headedness as if we would have done any better. But let's not miss this. Is this not the glory of our Savior? Jesus' ministry began and was characterized all along by getting his hands dirty with the mess and sin of those he came to save. Prostitutes, tax collectors, which they were like, opportunism meets extortion. (laughs) There. You want to start your group with that kind of crowd? Okay? Smelly, dirty outcasts, sinners. That's how it started, and it ends the same. Jesus said, I came not for the righteous, as if there are any, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So, if you're not glad, at th- glad of this, if you don't see that this is the glory of your Savior, if you continue in scoffing at the disciples and don't check yourself, maybe you might think you smell a little better than you do. I think we could easily be blind to our foolish pride and have kind of an ugly superiority complex, not being in touch with our own sin and left unchecked, we would have been in the same place. Okay, Jesus, again, this is his glory. Jesus doesn't build his kingdom with the naturally gifted and the impressive people, the natural movers and shakers, the A-list, the people with the, the clout and the pull, the people who can pull strings. His kingdom is completely countercultural, and That's to his glory, and it actually is so hope-giving for us if we're able to be honest with ourselves and recognize our need. So, verse 25, he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Okay, So those who lead and rule, whether it's in the time of the disciples or our time, what's the nature of power? Oftentimes, that rule, authority, power is used. People empower, use other people. They abuse other people in order to get their will and agenda done. They lord it over them to build their name and kingdom. In our day, you might think that in certain pockets, even in kind of the secular marketplace, um, we've evolved past this. Okay, if you've read some leadership literature, maybe, maybe in your company you hear things about the importance of servant leadership. So we think, you know, some of our leadership wisdom's gotten a little more sophisticated. But guess what? It's still got the same selfish root. Rather than maybe lauding raw power and dominance, okay, that doesn't typically happen maybe in the Western world. Rather than barking orders from high places, you do hear servant leadership and authenticity and and an air of everyman accessibility and credibility is advised. But why? Because it works. If you want to be great, you got to do these things because it works. If you're really going to succeed, you have to learn the techniques if you're really going to, again, between the lines, build your kingdom. Which is very close to the second way Jesus describes the worldly leadership in verse 25. Those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Back then, um, let me just read this summary quote here, says it well, by Joel Green. Private benefaction was the primary means by which the wealthy were legitimated as those most deserving of public office and prestige in the community. In order to provide leadership, wealth was required. So only the wealthy could provide leadership and thus enjoy the honor and self-advancement reserved for those who gave so generously. In other words, here's what happened. The rich back then didn't have to pay taxes in Jesus' day. But the state revenue wasn't great enough to meet all the needs of community. So the rich, who were the ones who held the positions of power okay? Because you had to be rich to to hold the position of power. They were able to actually pick and choose how they would use their money to most strategically build their reputations as generous benefactors. Why? It reinforced their power and status and secured it. So do you see how it was selfish? Their generous giving was self-serving. And that's what I'm saying. Some of the Wisdom seems like it's more, it's kinder, it's, it's um, less authoritarian, but still it's typically self serving in the end. It still serves the bottom line in the end. And it's not supposed to be that way with Jesus' disciples. Verse 26 It's not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the lowest, the youngest. And the leader must become like the servant. For who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I, the greatest, am among you as the one who serves. So who's greater, the professional golfer or the one who carries his clubs? Who's greater, the one who eats at the corner table at Morton's or the one who buses the table? Well, here's Jesus, the king the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the King of the kingdom and he is going to teach his disciples about leadership in his kingdom by both his words here and certainly his deeds as he heads to the cross. The ultimate servant act of love. So the world's way is use power for selfish reasons, for control, for status, for comfort. Use power for servant reasons, on the other hand, is the way of this kingdom. It's using any power that you have in order to love and bless and help and rescue. Okay, so authority and power are to be used to give, not to take Okay, so the point is not, Jesus is not saying, you know what, if you want to rise to greatness, you've got to put your lowliness time in. The point is, the lowly road of servant hearted leadership is true greatness. So we've seen this countercultural orientation to the kingdom of God all through the book of Luke. Um, there are reversals happening left and right where those in the eyes of the world that are great are being brought low, and those who are low are being exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, All this was set up from the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke when we hear this sweet song coming from this young, unwed, pregnant teenage girl. Remember back in chapter 1? He's done mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. So with all these reversals, this countercultural kingdom that Jesus is bringing, you want to be on the right side of the world when Jesus turns it upside down. Okay, which leads us right into verses 28 to 30. Glory. So he just said what he said about true greatness. It's this, you know, the youngest were considered the lowest. Those that had age were given respect and privilege, and so the youngest were the lowest. That's what ought to mark Jesus' disciples' And Exhibit A is Jesus himself, the greatest one, who, as Bill read in John 13, is taking up the basin and the towel and doing the most menial of tasks. The lowest of the low servants alone would do this role. Okay? Nobody wanted to do that role because it was the lowest of the low role, and Jesus, the greatest, takes the lowest role and washes his disciples' feet. So that's the nature of greatness and leadership in his kingdom. But then he he focuses on glory, which is really interesting to lay these things side by side. There's this humble, embrace the shame sort of road of lowliness following in Jesus, the suffering servant, his path. But also look what he says in verse 28. You are those who've stood by me in my trials, And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. So this is really interesting here. I mean, obviously we know how thick headed the disciples are, how slow they are to get it. They're pretty selfish and petty, but you know what? They've stuck with him. He was treated with veiled and eventually open hostility by the religious leaders. The fact that they stuck with him basically meant that, you know, if it goes bad with him, we're sunk when it comes to those folks. Like, we're labeled. Jesus was slandered as an emissary of Satan. Oh, you're cast out demons by the prince of demons. They stuck with him. When he was labeled and judged and slandered as one of the friend of sinners, okay, why does he eat with these people? They were with him. They didn't bolt. Okay, so this is true. Even though they're (laughs) thick-headed, even though they're going to deny and scatter, it is true, he says, you've stood by me in my trials. And it's amazing that Jesus here speaks of their future glory even before they all bolt very soon when he's arrested. And they're only going to have this glory because it's a gift of grace. And the way things unfold are going to make that abundantly clear that it's only a gift of grace. Jesus grants it to them. See there, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table. Okay. So it's not by accident that it's, it comes after verses 24 to 27. This teaching about the future glory of these disciples would be dangerous without 24 to 27. Right? They would think way too highly. They already do. They would think way too highly of themselves. And yet, if you only had verses 24 to 27 about the servant-hearted leadership, that would be reductionistic. It wouldn't be the whole picture. It would leave out the future glory. Now, for us, as we read this, there is a sense in which the glory that Jesus gave to his apostles is unique. Are we going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the same way that these apostles will? No. Okay, there are 12 apostles. They fill a very unique and unrepeatable place in the history of the church. Okay, there are not uppercase A apostles running around these days. Their role and glory is unique. But, they are also typical of all believers in so many ways. Okay, the kind of servant leadership that Jesus commands of them is certainly applicable to all of us. We probably don't doubt that. But do you know that the glory that Jesus gives them here is also very much the glory that he assigns to all of his people? If you're in Christ, this glory is your glory as well. Do you believe that? You remember back a few chapters to chapter 19, Jesus told that parable of the nobleman that went to the distant country to receive a kingdom, and he gave 10 of his servants um, some money to invest while he was gone. Some were faithful with that stewardship. This is how he, the king, speaks to them when he returns. Well done, good slave. Because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over 10 cities. And the second came, your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Do you know that you're going to rule and reign? If you're in Christ, you know that you're going to rule and reign with Jesus? Do you believe that? Do you, you think it might be helpful to know that? Do you think that might be um, something that could impact the way that we live today? Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. I think we, you need to see this. This is actually more present in the Bible than you might realize, this theme. Crazy words. I wouldn't believe them if they weren't in here. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 6. Okay, so the Corinthian church was kind of a mess. There was all kinds of factions and divisions and problems and so forth, and, and people were bickering and fighting, and in some cases, they're taking these fights to the courts rather than being able to make peace themselves within the church. And Paul says, What is going on here? So, 1 Corinthians 6 1, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to, to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You think that's hyperbole? If the world is judged by you, Corinthians, you immature, crazy people, <laughs> Are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Would you believe this if it wasn't in here? How much more matters of this life. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no count in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there are not among you that there is not among you, one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Which obviously kind of drags the name of Jesus through the mud because these Christians can't make peace. Maybe they don't know this Prince of Peace. Do you know what this all goes back to? It goes back to the way that we originally created as image bearers. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Their rule was a mediated rule to be sure, but it's a rule nonetheless Okay? It is really the king's kingdom that he grants oversight of, but it's oversight nonetheless. Okay? We were originally intended to be vice regents, exercising dependent dominion over God's creation. We were to be ambassadorial rulers. Okay? So at the renewal of all things, flip ahead to Revelation so that you see this is how things are described in the book of Revelation. First, look at Revelation 5.9. probably familiar with the first part of this these two verses but maybe not so much the second half revelation 5 9 and they sang a new song saying worthy are you this is the lamb that was slain jesus the king Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them, all your people, from all these tongues and tribes and peoples and nations, to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. They will rule. Now flip ahead to the end of the story, Revelation 22. Revelation 22, three, there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him. Here's the servants, but look what else it's going to say about the servants. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. You believe that? (laughs) This is part of what it means to be adopted into God's family, sons and daughters of the king, and heirs of all things. So the cross certainly comes before the crown for Jesus, and for these disciples, shame will certainly come before this honor in a couple of senses, actually. So let's look at the shame here in verses 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. That you, the first you, Satan has demanded permission to sift you as plural. So, in other words, all of you. Even though he's speaking to Simon, Simon is representative of the whole, he's the leader. He, in a sense, is the greatest. In the context that makes sense. Satan has de- demanded permission to sift you all like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, singular, that your singular faith may not fail, and you, once again singular, when, you ter- when, when once you, you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Then Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And then he predicts the denial. So this is somewhat reminiscent of Job 1 and 2, you know, um, Satan asking permission to mess with Job. It's also reminiscent of the temptation in the wilderness. Just as Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness to tempt him and to draw him away from his father and his mission, he now wants to strike at Jesus' disciples. But he still aims his demand at Jesus. Jesus. Okay, this says, first of all, one, one thing that's true is that Satan can't get at Jesus's disciples unless he comes through Jesus first. He's got to ask permission. So if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ, you should rejoice in this kind of protection that you got to get through me first. Okay, and that one between you and the evil one is omnipotent. So, that's encouraging. But it also says that Satan was trying to exploit their failures against them to Jesus. Remember the temptation in the wilderness, how it ended? When the devil had finished every temptation, he left Jesus for an opportune time. Here's another opportune time. You can imagine Satan trying to capitalize on this opportune time. Look at these idiots. These guys are going to carry forth your kingdom plan? They are going to take your message to the ends of the earth? Did you see how they came into the upper room? How they jockeyed for position? Don't you hate their thick headedness? Don't you hate their selfishness? All of that as you're on your way to die and suffer. Why don't you just let me crush them and you can start over with a new batch? He wants to sift all the disciples, to shake them loose from Jesus and his saving grip on them. So that sifting metaphor has connotations of a violent shaking, crushing to separate the head of the grain from the parts that you don't want. As one commentator said, our English idiom of picking someone to pieces or taking someone apart has similar force. Okay, So even though the sifting is aimed at all the disciples, Jesus speaks specifically to Peter as Again, the greatest, in a sense, among the disciples, the leader of the 12. And as the leader, he's representative of the whole. And obviously, he's going to lead them in denial, right? He's going to have this explicit denial where the others, it's more implicit. They just scatter. But just as he leads them in denial, he's also going to lead them in restoration, and he's going to strengthen his brothers, Okay. So this is beautiful. There's so much gospel grace in this moment right here because earlier in Luke Jesus said, "I'm going to suffer, and anyone who wishes to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because if you want to save your life, you'll lose it." Peter should have lost his life. Peter should have been judged because that's exactly what he did. He denied Jesus to save his skin. And yet Jesus prayed for him, and he was restored. (laughs) Do you think that might be an encouragement for us? Have you ever denied Jesus? Have you ever been ashamed? Have you ever been silent? Is this potentially an encouragement for us? Is there a lot of gospel grace right here? So more gracious irony, Peter in his bravado claims, I'm willing to go, I'm prepared to go to prison and death. And Jesus says, in effect, no, you're not yet. When you are ready, Peter, it will not be a result of your bravado. It will not be a result of your natural zeal and boldness. It will be a result of my spirit's power in you. Because guess what? Keep reading Luke's sequel in Acts. Peter did go to prison. And Peter did face death. And we know from church history that he died because of his faithfulness to Jesus but note the progression. Note the sequence here. This is beautiful. More gospel grace here. Jesus intercedes and predicts Peter's return and restoration before Peter ever falls, before he ever fails. So, I mean, just look at this. He's saying to him before it even happens, <laughs> Peter, you're going you're to deny me, but I've already prayed for you. Like, how beautiful is that? So you know, later in chapter 22, there's this moment, and, and archaeologists have actually found this spot, and they've stood where Peter would have been, and where Jesus would have been, and there is an eye, there's, there's a visual sight line, because Jesus turns, it says in chapter, um, I think it's 2261, the rooster crows, um, which is a good little parable in itself, because they're cocky, right? No, really. This, this is intentional here, Okay. So, not only was Jesus reminded of the prediction of the denial, he had the prediction of the restoration beforehand. How gracious of that, or how gracious is that of Jesus to give it to him beforehand? Yes, he went out and wept, but he also, I can't even believe it. Can I believe it? You, you've already prayed for me. I'm supposed to turn, and you're going to use me still after I did that? Jesus is not interested in saying, I told you so. He could. He could have just left that out till Peter, you know, really kind of just wallowed in it for a while, had to really feel it. He could have just left that prediction of of restoration for later, after the resurrection. No, he gave it graciously to him beforehand so that when he was reminded of the prediction, he'd also be reminded of the promise. What does that say about your Savior? And then make sure you see it. There's so much grace in here. Jesus prays, and Peter is safe. You remember John 17, high priestly prayer? Listen to how many themes intersect here with our text. Jesus is praying, Holy Father, keep them, protect them, in your name, which you've given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which we just read about last week. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I do not ask for these only, but for also for those, all those who will believe in me through their word. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Do you know that if you're in Christ, Jesus prayed that prayer of protection for you and for me? So just as certain as it was for Peter, it is for us as well. Despite our ability, oh, our ability and proclivity to deny. Do you know that Jesus prays for you? In Hebrews uh, Hebrews 7.25, you can look at that one later. But Romans 8, very familiar text. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who can condemn? You can imagine Peter condemning himself. You can imagine other people. What are you doing leading us? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So is there some uniqueness to the apostles and What's being stated here, yes, but it's also typical. It's indicative of what's true for all Jesus' people, his disciples, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Okay, so our advocate, your advocate, my advocate before the Father is omnipotent. We can't be sifted out of his hand by Satan. And his effectiveness in advocacy with the judge is absolutely without fail. That's good news. A lot of grace in here. So now Jesus prepares them for the hour of darkness. Look at verses 35 to 38. When he said this, er, he said, and he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt, bag and sandals, did you lack anything? No, nothing. He said to them, but now Whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. Whoever has no sword is to sell one and sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you, you can say, what is going on here? Well, remember back in chapters nine and 10, Jesus sends his disciples out on some early missions. Okay, gives them authority. And he says, don't take anything with you because, you know, people will welcome you into their homes and they're going to be hospitable. And that's what happened. But now Jesus is going to the cross And he's getting them ready because they are going to experience not necessarily hospitality all the time. They are going to face a lot of hostility. Why are they going to face hostility? Because scripture is being fulfilled. Look at the logic there. But now, be prepared. Why? Because I tell you, this which is written must be fulfilled in me. He was numbered with the transgressors. Okay, on the surface, it means I'm going to suffer and be killed. So those who killed me are going to have their crosshairs on you too. Be ready. But the deeper reality is that Isaiah 53, 12 is being fulfilled. Okay, that's that, that messianic text, that amazing prediction in Isaiah 53 about this suffering servant that's going to be like a lamb led to the slaughter, Okay, listen to Isaiah fifty three twelve. the context of what Jesus quotes here. Because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Okay, because he poured it out, he's going to be rewarded is basically the context. Okay, so what does that mean? Does that mean, well, he hung between two criminals? That's true. Possibly that could be what's intended here, but it's more likely that it's charged with even more meaning. He is saying he's numbered with us. He's numbered with the transgressors. He's numbered with the transgressors because he became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay. He was, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He's numbered with us. He became a curse for us. So when he lived, carried on his ministry, he got a bad rap for hanging out with the transgressors, with the sinners. Now he's going to hang as a sinner. In fulfillment of Isaiah 53, he is going to bear our sin for us in order to take our punishment, to take our judgment that we deserve so that we can be set free, so that we can become his people so that we can reign with him. So, what's the deal with the swords? The point is not that'll be enough swords. You know, it's good to have a few, but I am the divine Messiah after all so, you know, we can win with even two. Like, th- that's not the point. When he says it is enough, it's an expression of, exaggerate, uh, of exasperation. It's like, enough! You don't get it. <laughs> Just be quiet. <laughs> that's, that's the point. In case you're wondering about that. And if you're wondering, still keep reading because in zeal, Peter's going to try to hack off the head of that servant. And the servant goes like this, which is why his, actually it was like this. That's why the ear gets cut off. And Jesus, enough of this, and heals the ear. Okay? Now, let's just step back for a second, see what's happening, what it means for us. Okay, so in this text, we see the shame of denial, the shame of sin. All of us are implicated here, okay? And we also see the glorious grace of Jesus, okay? So there's a little equation in your notes there. Shame plus glorious grace equals what? Okay, in this passage, shame, the shame of denial plus the glorious grace of Jesus predicted here, promised here, one on the cross. That combination produces royal servants who gladly despise the shame for the glorious joy that's set before them. Okay, what do I mean by that? Um, Let me just read a brief little... Um, let me just read a brief little quote here Uh, Bill Hughes a little while ago sent this link and and, uh, it's a little devotional thought by John Piper Um, in Hebrews 12 it talks about how Jesus despised the shame what does that mean he writes this it means Jesus spoke to shame like this listen to me shame do you see that joy in front of me compared to that you're less than nothing you're not worth comparing to that I despise you You think you have power? Compared to the joy before me, you have none. Joy, joy, joy. That is my power. Not you, shame. You are worthless. You are powerless. You think you can distract me? I won't even look at you. I have a joy set before me. Why would I look at you? You're ugly and despicable, and you are almost finished. You cover me now as with a shroud. Before you can say, so there, I will throw you off like a filthy rag. I will put on my royal robe. You think you're great because even last night you made my disciples run away. You're a fool, shame. You're a despicable fool. That abandonment, that loneliness, this cross, these tools of yours, they're all my sacred suffering and will save my disciples, not destroy them. You're a fool. Your filthy hands fulfill holy prophecy. Farewell, shame. It is finished. Now, we are called to follow in the footsteps of our suffering savior who is the king. We have shame because of our sin and we will embrace shame as we follow Jesus. We are called to embrace the low road of humble service which sometimes is gonna mean we swallow our pride and we embrace shame. How do you do that? How do you look at all of your stuff that you regret and are ashamed of and keep going forward? How do you take the low road of humble suffering? All of this grace, all of this glorious grace, all of this royal priesthood, all of this heirs of all things grace, all of those promises, the joy set before you, If you know that you are a son or daughter of the king and you're an heir of all things, do you have to prove anything? Do you have to protect your pride? Do you have to build your name and kingdom? Do you have to use people for your own selfish purposes? Or are you filled up with so much glorious grace that you can gladly, like, I don't deserve to be here. People can point the finger at you. Satan can point the finger at you from what you've done in the past. Oh, I know, but look at how Jesus treats people like me. Look at what he's done for me. Look at what he's promised to me. You can despise the shame because of the glorious grace, and you can embrace the shame because of the glorious grace. You know who you are. You've been promised all things. No one can take your identity from you. No one can take your security from you. No one can take these promises from you. And when you're filled up with that grace, you will gladly deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus on this humble road of service to others. So we are called to love and give and bless and serve. We don't use people to puff up our reputation. We serve people to promote Jesus' reputation among the people we serve. When we know these things, when we really drink in this grace, this glorious grace, it's going to free us to humble ourselves. We've got nothing to prove. We've got so much love to give. Like John 13, being served by Jesus, glorious grace. Wash each other's feet. Love each other. Humbly. So, Jesus is the servant king. He suffered. He despised the shame. He took our shame on himself to forgive us and cleanse us of it, to set us free, making us his own so that we will one day rule and reign with him forever. You have it all. (laughs) You've already been given the kingdom. So, we can take up the basin and the towel. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would well up with gratitude and joy because of how you have dealt with and treated us, those who have denied your name, and you have been so merciful and so gracious, and I pray that we would recognize that and that we would despise the shame and gladly walk the lowly road of humble service, all the while full of praise (laughs) to our God from whom all of these glorious, gracious blessings flow, all flowing from the cross, from the blood of our suffering servant, Savior, King Jesus, with whom we will reign forever and ever. In his name we pray, amen.